instead of leading the world, the evangelical church, it's if like if we're all running a foot race, we're all running a 10K, Joseph, you and your age group, you're way at the front and I and the old ladies, I'm way in the back. Well, instead of leading the world, the evangelical church is just jogging a few miles behind it, not realizing that it's actually running in the same direction. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome, friends, to Outstanding. This is a place where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us once again. It's my pleasure to be your host, and I'm Joseph Backholm. And in our ongoing efforts to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, sometimes we need to step back and think about where we're most likely to be deceived. After all, it is a common human ailment to believe things that aren't true. Now, we know this in uh, scientific senses. In the past, we believed that lobotomies would cure mental illnesses. We believed that bloodletting would cure infections. We also once believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And we believe these things because someone we trusted told us it was true, and we frankly lacked the information to prove otherwise. So we just went with it. Now, indeed, today, many people still believe that Vikings wore horned helmets and that elephants are afraid of mice, even though there's ev no evidence for either of those. And in fact, the elephants and mice thing, um, it turns out that elephants are afraid of certain uh, high-pitched noises that mice are produce capable of producing, but they're not, in fact, afraid of mice. Now, all of this simply speaks to our ability to be deceived. But the truth is, no one's life is likely to be ruined if they believe Vikings wore horned helmets, even though there's no evidence that it's true. So it's possible to be wrong about things that aren't particularly significant. But sometimes our capacity for deception has greater consequences. For example, in the past, it was popular to believe that eugenics would improve the human condition, that people had different value based on their skin color or their sex. So baby girls were denied human rights and people would treat other people as property just because they had different ethnicities. All of these were based on things we came to believe simply because the people around us told us they were true. Now, as the saying goes, there's nothing so absurd that if we hear it repeated often enough, we won't come to believe it is true. And if generations in the past we're deceived. Humility requires us to acknowledge that it's possible for us to be deceived as well. And my guest today has written a book titled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, in which she tells us what she thinks we are being lied about. Rosaria Butterfield is an American author, speaker, homemaker, and former tenured professor of English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University. She may be best known for her autobiography, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English professor's journey into the Christian faith, which details her conversion from a lesbian and postmodern activist to a Bible-believing Christian. And now she joins me to talk about her current book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Rosaria, welcome to Outstanding. Thank you, Joseph. It's wonderful to be here with you. Well, it's good to have you. We're going to get into your five lies here. Um, but uh, there's a lot of lies today. Uh, tell mm -hmm. us first, as a, as a preamble, how did you come up with this particular list and decide these are the ones that needed to be addressed. Right, 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 right. 
Um, well, it started with, you know, as most things start with conversation. So, um, you know, moms and grandmas would stop me at Costco or come to my house or come to my church and say, what is going on with, with this world? Um, why are Christians divided on the most basic elements of faith? Why are my children who were at one point walking with the Lord now deconstructing their faith? Um, if Christ is not divided, why are we? Why does my pastor use slogans instead of the Bible? Um, why can't we major on the majors anymore? And those are really good questions. And I kept hearing them. I mean, they, it wasn't like one person. It was a year of those questions. And so um, I sat down and I just thought about it. And it seemed to me that there were three reasons. And those three reasons unleashed a particular nexus of five lies. And all of those five lies are are, are, you know, they're organized around attacking and rebelling against the created order, the basic question of anthropology and um, what it means to be a man or a woman. And so the three reasons were that I could come up with were really simple. Um, uh, apparently channeling our inner Andy Stanley, uh, dare I say now, God forbid, we uh, decided that we were going to unhitch from the Old Testament, failing to realize that the seeds of the gospel are in the garden. The second reason was I was talking to all of those people who are spending a lot of time listening to the Gospel Coalition. And uh, you know what? They don't know what time it is. They, I mean, I, I, you know, they could know what time it is. It's not like it's big a big secret, but they don't know what time it is. And what time is it? post Obergefell, post Bostock, uh, Biden, Joe Biden thinking that castrating your 14-year-old son is good to do in the name of the 14th Amendment, no Title IX, and anti-bullying legislation in every government school um, that promotes uh, transgender ideology. That's what time it is. And if you don't know what time it is, you can't function. I mean, I understand God is not constrained by time and weather and things like that, but you and I are, so know what time it is. And then the third reason is a lack of love. That um, instead of loving our enemies, uh, the promoters of the commercialization of Christianity in Big Eva decided that the best thing to do is to just be comfortable with, with common grace and just pretend our enemies are our friends. And I, I just praise the Lord that when I was um, at, you know, the first when I was exploring Christianity, the pastor that the Lord put on my path loved me enough to tell me the truth. And then that unleashed five lies. And then perhaps you don't even want to be talking to me because I believed all those lies. I promoted them as a lesbian activist wrote some of them into policy. But then even as a Christian, I continued to believe some of these lies. And so the book begins with my, as it should, repentance. Um, but the five lies are the lie that says homosexuality is normal. It's a normal sexual variant. The second lie is that pagan spirituality is good for the, uh, you know, it's 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 kind, it's 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 decent, it's moral, it's good, and biblical Christianity is harsh and unyielding. Uh, the third lie is that feminism is good for the church and the world. 
The fourth lie is that transgenderism is a normal gender variant. And the fifth lie is that modesty is an outdated virtue. It's dangerous for women. It causes women to be abused and to be mistreated. And it furthers biblical patriarchy. And biblical patriarchy is supposedly a bad thing. So um, those are the five lies. And all of those lies are in some way, one or the other, an attack on the created order, which you find in the creation ordinance in Genesis 1, 27, 28. Well, we're just only going to have time to kind of wet people's whistle, so to speak, in our conversation today. And again, the book is called The Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. But I want you to address each of these briefly in the time that we do have. The first one, the idea that homosexuality is normal. You say that's the lie. Now, um, when you say homosexuality is normal as the lie, do you mean that it's normal as in it's common or that it's normal and that it's healthy? Yeah, normal in that it's normative and that it's normative for some people because that's how they feel. So um, the lie homosexuality is normal is promoted in churches. And I should say this, my, my primary concern is not the world that the world thinks all these things because I fully expect them to. My concern is that the church has been buying into them in more subtle forms, but nonetheless dangerous ones. So the normalization of homosexuality comes to us through a teaching called Side B Gay Christianity, whose central idea is that same-sex attraction is not a sin it's only a sin if you act on it. So in other words, you can violate the 10th commandment all you want if you think you're gay. If you don't think you're gay, you, go, don't, you don't get a free pass on it. But if you think you're gay, you get a free pass on the 10th commandment because that's who you are, not just how you feel. And the, the normative and the, normal, the, the normalizing of homosexuality is extremely dangerous, not the least of which for people like the person I used to be. And here's why. Part of how homosexuality is normalized is through the civil magistrate. So it's one thing to deal with homosexuality as an indwelling sin. It's another to deal with it as maybe a consequence of child sexual abuse. Those are those are all real issues, real problems. And, and Christians are not barbarians. We do not throw people away. We care about that. But it's another for homosexuality to become part of the nation's reigning idol, LGBTQ+. We are no longer just talking about people and their problems. We are talking about an idol to which you and I and everyone else is expected to genuflect, to worship, to bow to, to put, you know, use pronouns and, you know, put your rainbow sticker on your Facebook page or whatever. And so um, that's part of the challenge of this. Um, we're not just talking with a sin pattern, but it is a particularly interesting sin pattern, not the least of which because it was the one the Lord saved me from. But um, it was it, it's an interesting one because of the particular way that it perverts image bearing of a holy God. And so I can't tell you how many times when I was a lesbian activist, you know, Christians who wanted to witness to me would say things like, you know, you are made 
the image of God as a lesbian. And um, I was a very committed atheist at the time, which is refreshing. Don't you think? Like, don't you wish that atheists actually knew they were atheists, you know, back in the day? Um, uh, but but what, what it does is it conflates two categories that ought not be conflated. Image bearing of a holy God is what it uh, what you see in Genesis 1, 27, 28. And you are made in the image um, of God as a man or as a woman. And that being a man and being a woman are ontological and eternal. You will be the man you were meant to be in either the New Jerusalem or hell, uh, you know, as you are here on earth. Um, but you grow in the image of God and you reflect the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Um, transgenderism and homosexuality come from um, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you cannot be made in the image of God as a lesbian. I, yeah, I mean, you can certainly be made in the image of God, and you have the indwelling sin of homosexuality, and you need to learn how to how to mortify that sin and to be delivered from it through the power of the resurrected Christ. And that is the gospel message. Uh, homosexuality is found in the flesh, it's forbidden in the law, and it is overcome in the gospel and the Savior. But if you claim, or if the Christians in your life claim that um, you can be made in the image of God as a trans person or as a quote-unquote, and I put that in quotes, quote-unquote trans person, quote-unquote gay person, because these are not personhood categories, Um uh, that is just just a flat out lie, and we have a bunch of liars, and we need to call it out. Um, and part of why we need to call it out is we're not throwing people away. If they repent and they stop doing this, we welcome them with open arms. But if they don't, then um, they should probably start selling insurance. That would be a good thing. What's well, and that problem? leads us, I think, well to your second lie, which is that being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian, because what you were just referring to there is this idea that um, it's really nasty to demand and compel repentance um, rather than just kind of, you know, hug and love and accept and affirm and 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 tolerate, right. which is not nearly as good as loving and accepting and affirming anymore. Um, but right. the lie, right. being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. How do you think this is impacting the church today? In a really interesting way, because about 20 years ago, um, maybe, maybe, maybe less than that, but, uh, you know, we saw this bumper sticker, um, you know, it was, uh, coexist and you had the cross next to the symbol of Buddha next to the symbol. And you had this idea that, okay, these were different religions, but we all agree that, you know, Jesus was a nice guy and so is Buddha. And so we're all just going to coexist. And now it's, it's, it's even a more intense. And I, I should back up too, before I say that, that, you know, pagan spirituality works on this idea that the creator and the creature are indeed um, not separate, right? Uh, Peter Jones talks about it in terms of, you know, oneism, all is one. And yet we obviously know that uh, biblical Christianity is based on the idea that, uh, you know, there's a clear separation between the creator and the creature. Um, and then, uh, you know, it downstream from that, you have a number of other differences. Um, uh, you know, this idea of paganism says that we all share in a divine power, 
that every religion has some truth to it, that um, we just need to keep trying harder and be good people because there isn't a sin problem. And we need to look within ourselves, right? We need to find the the goodness in ourselves. Whereas um, biblical, biblical Christianity says that there are two kinds of people, those who love God and those who do not. Um, and spirituality means worship and service of the one true God. And we, um, uh, you know, God has given a solution to our sin problem, but it requires ultimately that we look to God alone um, and to the Lord Jesus Christ alone in repentance. And so those are two very different ideas. In fact, to use words of our day, paganism is non-binary. And Christianity is binary. Now, what you see today, though, isn't so much broad evangelical pastors saying things like, I think we should be pagans. You know, I think that's not it. It's it's the problem is first John four, the spirit of our age, the the new age um, kind of amalgamation of things is now named Jesus. So people have Jesus, my imaginary friend, you know, Jesus, uh, my little cutout doll that sits on my shoulder and says, gay is great. Gay is fine. Um, and you see this in books and blogs that have been given for reasons I do not understand the attention of the evangelical world. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and so in, in, uh, you know, just reading through a book recently, uh, the, the author wants to claim that he's a conservative evangelical Christian. He says that he believes that marriage is between a man and a woman, but then he says Christians should never straight, he says straight Christians, straight Christians, whatever that, you know, should never use Romans one to call gay Christians to repentance. Why? I mean, it, it's funny because he he is somebody who does get some some street cred today, um, but it's reminiscent of when you know when uh, Matthew Vines said, "I don't think Romans one is relevant to this conversation." So I, I this is where I don't understand why we don't just say to these people, "Get behind me, Satan," and just, let's just see what happens. Yeah, it, it seems to me that we do have a we ha- we have an issue of. Um, fashioning a God made in our own image, where for some mm-hmm. reason we're still attached to the name Jesus, but we create a version right. of Jesus that we find acceptable to ourselves. And it's not exactly. unlike generations and you know cultures past where we would literally fashion our own God and we would worship it because we liked it because we made it and um, we found it acceptable to our sensibilities. And now we just do this in the abstract. We still call it Jesus, but it has very little resemblance to the Jesus of the Bible. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and part of why this seems to confuse people is um, we have decided that you know, the, the, the original error of, of gay Christianity, again, is this idea that you are not to repent of your sin if your sin is this desire for something that God hates. Because according to the, you know, the the, the priests of this, this paganism, um, you're not acting. There's no motion. There's no will in that. And, and it's a misunderstanding 
of how in God's great wisdom, often the uh, New Testament commands are anchored in Old Testament reality. And um, and this is just a really important uh, error. And it's, it's a really sad error because who tells you not to repent of your sin other than Satan? Like, I, I don't, like, I, I can't figure out who else is out there saying that. And yet I could list names and you know, I name names. So we'll probably before the day is done, we'll, we'll name them, uh, you know, who are very comfortable saying that saying same sex attraction is not a sin. Uh, acting on it is well, the 10th commandment calls you a liar. Um, and James one does as well. When James one talks about internal temptation, that's not the don't tell me that Jesus was tempted in that way because Jesus did not have internal sin. He wasn't born in original sin. He was born of a virgin. So you're, you can have, and I can have sinful temptation. We can also have a, a, a temptation that isn't of sin. When Potiphar's wife uh, tried to seduce Joseph and he was, he repelled it. That was an example of a temptation that was not a sin, but same-sex attraction is indeed a temptation that is a sin. And what is so horrific about this, what is so vile about this, what is so uh, barbaric about this is a basic question. Um, when are you likely to beat your sin? When it's at the level of internal temptation and it's it's in kind of embryonic form or when it involves of another person? And it's in a kind of the form of a dragon. I mean, it's really obvious. Most of us are probably only equipped to battle our sin at the level of temptation. But side B gay yeah. Christianity and all of its advocates um, from revoice to exiles in Babylon and all the people that support those things are telling people, don't fight your sin when it's actually the most manageable to fight in Christ. Now, I mean, we're talking yeah. about people who know Christ, who are trying to live in the power of the resurrected Christ. And here we are shackling them, deceiving them, hoodwinking them, lying to them. Pretty bad stuff. We're, we're going to try to quickly get through the next three here. <laughs> feminism. Okay. I, is, can t I can feminism do them all together. Yeah. Well, no, we, to, we're, we're fine. We, I okay. still think we, yeah, we're just going to, okay. you know, we'll run through these. Right. The third lie here. Okay. Feminism is good for the world and the church. As you explain why you think that's a lie, define feminism for us in the sense that yeah. you mean it. Uh, right. Absolutely. Well, feminism is a, 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 you know, it's part of a humanistic uh, set of worldviews and it believes that women will be um, empowered to live uh, decent lives and good lives if they are not constrained by biological sex. And so feminism uh, uh, introduced for us this idea that sex and gender are different. Your biological sex is one thing, here we are, um, but you know, maybe I'm called to be an astronaut, Joseph, and I don't want to be tied down to these, you know, these kids over here. So the idea is that, you know, sex is biological, gender is cultural, and you should not be constrained by your biological sex. That would be a disservice. You would not be able to use your gifts and your callings. You wouldn't be able to defend yourself 
especially against the two things that feminism thinks you need to defend yourself from, uh, progeny and patriarchy, babies and men. And um, if left to your own, uh, you know, your own giftings and your own intelligence, you can protect yourself in this evil world. Um, and what's what's really interesting, there's a lot, I'm, I'm going to, if I can just link it to the, to, to another one here, um, this sex gender distinction that feminism is central, it's central to feminism. It's like the catechism of feminism. It's really interesting when you see the way transgenderism simply took that to its logical conclusion and said, actually, we don't need sex at all. All we have is gender and all we need is gender. And so if you're wondering where feminism went in the world, it died. Transgenderism killed it. The only place feminism is alive and well is the evangelical church. That's an interesting statement. And so that, I mean, leads me to another question. Does that mean, I mean, you say the only place that feminism is alive and well is the evangelical church. Does that mean you think that feminism, there's element, there, there's, goodness in it that satan has twisted so it it, it is no, no. How, how do you mean that explain no, that no that, what i mean by that is that instead of leading the world the evangelical church it's if like if we're all running a foot race we're all running a 10k joseph you and your age group you're way at the front and i and the old ladies i'm way in the back well instead of leading the world, the evangelical church is just jogging a few miles behind it, not realizing that it's actually running in the same direction. No, I do not believe that you need feminism at, at, in any form to arrive at the um, at the 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 honor and dignity protection. Um, and even the civic duties and rights that women have in the world. You do not need feminism to arrive at any of those things. Christianity actually offers all of that. And with it, a divine <clears throat> ordered protection where godly men are protecting and covering uh, women and children and, 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 and churches, right? They are the under shepherds of our churches. And so to make war against that which God has given to you as a form of protection results in yet another thing that we see in transgenderism. If you don't like biblical patriarchy, how do you feel about transgender patriarchy? Because that's what you see. That's a really great point, which leads us to the fourth point, and I think you can pick up on that, your fourth lie, which is that transgenderism is normal. Now, we've already kind of defined normal in the conversation about homosexuality in the, the sense that it's normative and is not something to be um, resisted. Interesting part of your conversation about this is you identify envy as the primary sin of transgenderism. Why is that? Right. Right. Well, um, transgenderism has two manifestations. One is a more psychiatric one, gender dysphoria, which is a lot like um, anorexia. In fact, it's medical analog and is anorexia. A person, a human being who genuinely looks at his or her body and says, it's awful. I can't stand it. Whether it's because it's fat, as you know, an anorexic would say, or because it's, it's not, I don't like this body. I don't like these, I don't like this secondary sexual characteristic. But the other and the more common one that we're dealing with today is transgenderism, which is an ideology 
Um, we see it manifested in rapid onset gender dysphoria. One out of four girls uh, who are in their government schools, for whatever reason, we can maybe talk about that as well, um, yeah. really being indoctrinated to believe that they're men and not women. And that's why they're uncomfortable in their bodies. And so, so um, what it ultimately does is it says something's not right. And if you only had something else, it would be right. Um, and and envy and the tenth commandment do go to violation of the tenth commandment do go together. You're not to covet or envy your neighbor's wife, and you're not to covet or envy your neighbor's sexual anatomy. That will not solve the problem. But what envy does do is it takes you down a rap, you know, just a rabbit hole of you know what the Bible will say is rottenness to your bones, and that it's worse than wrath. That it is uh, envy will literally eat you alive. It is a kind of spiritual suicide. Um, it is not a small sin, but the way that it's framed uh, right now in the LGBTQ plus idolatrous movement is that instead of saying it's envy, it's a sin, repent of it, learn contentment, what you're hearing is no, 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 the rest of you have to honor and dignify it. And so what's very, very interesting, you know, I don't just speak to academics. I don't just speak to churches. I speak to school boards. I speak to the dad who castrated his 14-year-old son. I And I speak to the son as well, and I invite them all over for dinner. So this is not theoretical to me. These are real people. Christians do not throw people away. Um, so, so I'm I'm in this 100. percent But what it, it, this is the first time in Western culture that I, in my you know ability to study it, uh, have seen where the anomaly is expected to norm the, the norm. You see, with anorexia, we didn't say, oh, you know, your daughter thinks that she's she's fat. Well, I think you should affirm her feelings. I think you should have, I think she needs a sticker and a parade. I think that'll really help her. I mean, other than a barbarian, who does that? You know, and, and part of why we've come to this place, Joe Rigney talks about it best, is the sin of empathy. This idea that you, the only thing you can ever do for someone who is suffering is stand in their shoes. Now, of course, there obviously are some times when it's good to stand in someone's shoes at a funeral, but when you have a problem that needs to be solved, you you need to offer sympathy. You need to stand outside of the problem and be logical and objective and solve the problem. And that is especially, uh, uh, it's especially satanic. I mean, I say in the book also that um, transgenderism is satanic. Um, we do know that, that in anywhere between 73 and 90% of the time, a child with gender anxiety if that child is not subjected to social transition, that's, you know, pronouns, um, hormonal uh, cha uh, transition, cross-sex hormones, or, or medical transitions, gender mutilation, that in 73 to 90% of the time, natal puberty will resolve the problem. And yet just the opposite is being told to parents. Oh, do you want a dead daughter or a living son? Well, that's blackmail. And that's just not true. But it is the result of a culture that has embraced this idea that my feelings determine my reality and and this, a church that hasn't said that's garbage 
Right. We lack the fortitude to just resist it in the way that it, the way that it deserves and just double down on the idea that some things are true, even if we don't feel like it. And eventually our feelings will come along. And if you obey your feelings, um, you go very bad places if that's the way you live your life. And of course, a lot of people are, are living proof of that. The fifth lie that you address in your book, Rosaria is an interesting one to me. Modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. Now I have three teenage daughters. I've had plenty of conversations about modesty, so I respect and appreciate it. However, for most of us, and I would have included myself, if I were to rank a list of the world's problems, I don't know that modesty would have make made the top five, but you, you have, you are featuring it here. Explain why. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm defining modesty, not only in dress, but also in conduct. So um, we have, we have replaced the whole category of the private with the um, just a kind of celebration of exhibitionism. And we see that in clothing but we also see that in you know on the internet and social media and we see that in everywhere in between and the category of the private is so important and especially i would say it's very important for young women um to cultivate a, a quiet and gentle spirit to um uh, and but also it's, i think it's very important to evangelize uh, in evangelism to sit down and talk with people privately to not be tweeting about them or blogging about them but to give them room to repent of sin and to change without being unduly shamed by the, you know, by all the social pressure to not repent of sin. And so I think it's really, I think I would like to suggest that we understand modesty, not so much exclusively as a practice of, of dress, but almost as an epistemology, almost as a, as an ethics, as a Christian ethic, we value the home. We value the covenant. We value the, I, I mean, I don't know about you. It's what's, well, we're on, we're actually in the same state. I forgot about that. Okay. Well, I do know about you. Um, I, I was able to accomplish more, you know, probably a hundred things in the first hour I was awake for my family, just because I'm mom. Like no other reason, uh, you know, I'm not, don't have a PhD in all those things that I got to do this morning, but I'm mom. And so, so this to, to undervalue and to even despise the private in the celebration of the public is vile. And it, and it's, and it, it's a violation of our covenant blessings. It's a violation of what it means to be a covenantal Christian. And so, um, and so to that end, I say very unpopular things in this book, right? I say things like get your kid out of government school. And I really don't think you should be on Twitter. And, you know, I, I don't know. Well, who am I? I have no authority. You don't have to listen to me. Yeah. But I, I do think that these, these, these places of public combat are not good for women. And I don't well, you- think that you can train a woman to be a godly woman if she is constantly in this place of combat, whether she has been put there by her parents who don't know what to do right now, or whether she has put herself there on Twitter for reasons that are beyond my ability to explain to you. You know, you're reframing 
in your broadening of this understanding of modesty, I think was actually quite helpful, which is why I wanted you to touch on that. And one of the things that challenged my brain as I read through this, and again, the book is Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And Rosaria, it is a great service. It is it is provocative on, on, on so many levels. And, and that's just kind of your nature. And I'm so grateful for it. Um, but we are going to wrap this up, but we're going to transition, um, you know, and stay tuned, folks, uh, for episode two, because we're going to come back with Rosaria and hear a bit more about just kind of her personal um, journey from feminist, lesbian, academic, university activist to, you know, clearly not that today and, and hear a bit more about that happens and in specifically how that might encourage you in the relationships with people that you have right now who might seem hopelessly lost because uh, no one is beyond the reach of God. And so we're going to discuss that in episode two. So that's our teaser. Come back uh, next time. Um, but Rosaria, thank you so much for your time and, and for your wisdom and for this book. And I know it's going to uh, challenge and encourage people uh, to, to think clear in a, a crooked world. So thank you so much. Thank you. And friends, we do uh, thank you for being part of this conversation today. Um, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, suggestions for future out episodes, uh, do email us outstanding at washingtonstand.com. And also a reminder that, that every episode of Outstanding is made possible because of our listeners just like you. And if you want to support uh, this episode and future ones, text the word outstanding to 67742 and you will be provided a means by which you can easily uh, support this. Like and subscribe also, especially on iTunes. The algorithm there has recently changed. So you do need to make sure you're subscribing so that the next episode will be delivered right to you again every Tuesday and Friday. You'll get another one. So we look forward to that next conversation. My name is Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.